six hours after the x-rays, you get a result back which says, eh, this is a poor quality film, and you don't do something about it. The last thing they need is to have you, number one, ignore it, or number two, diminish the seriousness of the problem. What do you know, Rick? It's March already, March 2016. I have just gotten back from doing your course in Hawaii. Thank you again. It was a wonderful experience, and I can't tell you how many people who show up at that course we've seen year after year, and a lot of them are risk-averse people, and they think that Risk Management Monthly is the bee's knees. So I think it's, uh, it's good we're able to get together with some of our folks. And uh, so why don't you kick it off this month with something that's uh, I know under your skin. Go ahead and do it. Well, listen, actually, uh, I'm looking at you on Skype, and I've noticed this incredible tan that you uh, got over there. <laughs> you, <laughs> you understand that. You've gone a, from gray to white. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I've gone from gray to white. It's an amazing act. You understand if you look in the dictionary under white man, they have my picture. And by the way, next to my picture is yours. So um, I don't feel bad that I do not have a tan from Hawaii. Oh, before we get going on everything else, let me give a shout out here and let our readers or listeners rather know about ethical dilemmas in emergency medicine. This is put out by Cambridge Press, edited by Catherine Marco, one of our friends, Rachel Shears. Uh, they've done a great job. They pulled great people together. And about a third of this book, which has to do with ethical dilemmas, has to do with medical legal situations in the emergency department. I've got a chapter in here. Art Dursey's got a chapter. I would advise people to just peruse this book. It is, it is I don't get a dime for it. You know, it's the usual uh $500 and a one, one free copy kind of thing you do. But I think you will like this book, and it touches on a lot of the issues we do here on Risk Management Monthly. So best of everybody, best to everybody who's written this book. And listen, where do you get this book? Amazon or someplace like yeah, that? Yeah, Amazon or? has it, but it's uh, Cambridge Press. So uh, most any of the houses that sell uh, medical books ha ha handle uh, Cambridge. So pick it up. It's good. Hey, listen, uh, so we, I know people think that we are just uh, shooting off of the, from the hip with, when we record this, but the fact of the matter is we have extensive notes that we refer to, extensive notes. <laughs> uh, um, and as a matter of fact, you've got the first case, Chief. You want to do it or you want to pass, pass it to me? I'm going to pass it to you because you're so much smarter. Uh, okay. This is a... It's a story that was uh, was written up in ED News, which is, you know, one of our monthly, uh, I don't want to call it throwaways, but it's, um, you know, of that nature. Yes. It was in the January issue, 2016. It's entitled Class Action Lawsuits Find Fault with ED Overcharges. It's by Gina Shaw. And let me give you the gist of the story. So there's this attorney in Nevada, Barry Kramer who has initiated multiple lawsuits across the country claiming that the undiscounted ED uh, charges are being applied to uninsured patients, largely on uninsured patients, that these charges are grossly exorbitant and are based on unconscionable rate structures. Wait, stop. 
I agree with everything that's been said. I've dealt, I dealt with this 30 years ago when I was chief of department and saw the bills that went to people who were not on Medicare or Medicaid, but had nothing. And they actually got the undiscounted bill. And for our listeners who don't understand this, we send out bills to, to Medicare all the time. They have a set amount that they discount these things. Maybe it's 50%, maybe it's 55%, but we've agreed to accept that. And then it comes. The poor schmuck who gets killed is the, the good person who comes in, they're working at some kind of job, don't have insurance, and now when the bill goes out to their house, they think they have to pay the whole thing. You know, I used, fact- to, I used to talk to these people all the time, Rick, and say, look, uh, what, what about if you paid this much? Because I could look it up and see what the discounted rate was. And they'd say, sure, we could pay that. And I'd say, I'll accept that. I, I don't know where it's gone these days, but this attorney is not all wrong. If you actually saw the pieces of paper that come out of these departments, it's unconscionable. Well, these are charges that nobody is expected to pay. These are the charges from which they uh, negotiate discounts to insurance companies. Nobody pays these charges except the uh, uninsured. They get the whole, whole bill. And he has had some successes. There's a, a um, Oregon Health Sciences Center has, was hit up by him. He's the, These cases that he's picking up are around the, the country. And the fact of the matter is, is that many, many hospitals will take you to collections unless you come to them with your hat in your hand saying, I'm poor, please help me, please help me kind of thing, which right. means that you have to submit your paychecks and prove that you are in need of a discount so they can, they can, they make it really quite, quite, quite miserable. Well, let's talk about this openly and honestly here, because the system has been going this way for 40 or 50 years. People get hammered for no good reason. And, you know, if I'm not a doc, I'm an economist and nobody else does it this way. Cost and charge have nothing to do with each other. They're not a whit related. We we once did a study in our own area looking at what people charge to put that close pin on your finger called the pulse ox. It varied in our own area by almost four times. One hospital had $175 and they put it under a respiratory fee. And I talked to the person who worked for us. And I said, what did the respiratory therapy come down? This and I said, no, they put the pulse ox on my finger. Another hospital had a charge of $45 for it. Rick, this is just the insanity we've come to. I don't disagree with this person challenging this. I'd, I'd like to see it challenged everywhere and come up with a reasonable structure based on cost and not mythical charge. Well, let's focus on the um, medical legal aspects of this because this guy, this is not new. There have been over the years, uh, attorneys who have done the same thing. And in fact, I remember very well about 15 years ago, there was an attorney based out of San Francisco who successfully sued some of the really majors, Catholic Healthcare West was successfully sued, Scripps, Sutter, I believe other 
major multi-hospital uh, systems in the West, the same allegation that nobody pays these charges, you are unfairly charging these people, that it, it was never intended that anybody pay these charges. And this attorney was successful across the board. And I recall that, at least with Catholic Healthcare West, because that's the hospital we were working with at the time, there was this huge fund set up. You had to claim that you were, were one of these poor people who were hit up. And there was this fund that was going to reimburse, not 100%, certainly not. And if your income level was too high, it wasn't going to reimburse you, but it involved hundreds of thousands of dollars. We don't, this issue began with the hospitals. The hospitals are the ones who were sued. However, emergency physicians do the identical thing. They right. charge the poor the full undiscounted uh, the rate no the rate nobody pays, and there was a very famous group in our state. You know them well. Yes, I do. Who was <laughs> who were also sued for the same reason, and they settled this thing rather than than litigate it. So if your your group is is at, is at some risk here, if you're basically gouging the cash patients to the exclusion of others. You're supposed to gouge everybody equally. We're, a, yeah. we're, we're an equal gouging um, Yes, we're system. equal opportunity gougers. You're yeah. right. You're absolutely right. Well, you know, uh, I, I looked at something not too long ago, looked at charges for the 10 most common outpatient things seen in the ER. The average charge, average charge was $2,000. That's, that's combination that's, doctor and hospital charge, correct, Rick? But the, yes, uh, yes, that's true. Yes. And, and but these were for largely nothing cases, which if you leave them alone, they're going to get better. So you have to treat them quickly before they heal themselves. For crying out loud! Well, well we've, we've at least proven that this that that these huge outrageous gouging charges, if they can't help patients, they can certainly help our ability to buy condos in Florida. So I mean, there is some good that comes out of this, Rick. Let's not be totally cynical. Well, the other thing too is, is that there's been some conversations lately that, that if you want to charge this amount, there will be other people who will be more than happy to relieve you of these people who uh, are getting these charges like CVS, you know, 17, 1800 of their, of their Drug stores now have these minute clinics, right? Yeah, exactly, exactly. Walmart is starting up on this stuff now. That Walmart has been the sleeping giant. They have something like forty five hundred stores in the country. They've only had a you know a handful of these places uh, getting started, but virtually all of these stores have pharmacies. They've already started treating their own employees. Four dollars a visit. Four dollars a visit for their employees. Forty dollars for. Uh, non-employees and you know this is we're waking up the sleeping giant here is going to kick us right in the shins and take all of the low-hanging fruit that we don't seem to be able to deal with because we're charging them inappropriately yeah the walmart study uh, has already been to its board they did this in every walmart store in the state of new jersey basically or a huge percentage of them and they're ready to go they're ready to roll this out national big time because well, yeah. they, they watch what's happening at CVS and all the other places. And they know they have to, they have to be in the business. And uh, 
since they sell everything under the sun, uh, what they know is if they get you in the store for uh, Johnny's earache, they're going to sell you something else too. It, Probably some ampicillin right. <laughs> inappropriately at that. But, but uh, just walk over to the pharmacy there. It's, it, it's waiting for you kind of thing. There's also this issue about tele, uh, telemedicine. I think it was in 2015, it was estimated that 1 million people had telemedicine interactions during that year. There's also these people who will send a doctor to your house for 40 bucks or so. As a, as a, you know, get the foot in the door charge. It's going on in New York City. It's going on yeah. here in Los Angeles, San Francisco. It's popping up all over the places. That's the concierge medicine, Ricky. Well, uh, you and New I York, can't afford that kind of stuff. Actually, yeah. in New York, it was, one of the guys who started it was in, uh, involved in the starting of Uber. And the charge now is $200. They'll come to your office, your house, you know, just about anywhere for 200 bucks. Others of these come with an assistant who's got all kinds of, they have instruments, Greg, that I've never even seen that takes a picture of your eardrum. They also have these, you know, what, what is the name of that little device that does all of these blood tests on you that. Yeah. 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 The iStat thing. They got the that. ISTAT. Yeah. Right. Point of service testing. Yeah. So uh, giving anyway, numbers, which are 10 to 15% off and you don't need any way to make most decisions on ambulatory patients. But I'm, I'm sure if they, if they, uh, if they want it, they can get it. Now that we've had our minute to vent on this thing, let's move on to uh, last month. You remember that we, we mentioned a study that said, if you have one malpractice suit, your risks for another one are greater. We didn't spend a lot of time on this, Rick, but it seems, it seems like it ought to be correct. Well, not so fast. There is an article in, both Febu in the February issue of Family Practice News and the same article in Internal Medicine News and one of the EM tabloids. And, and when they claim that the study that we quoted had methodologic issues, didn't we learn that phrase from, from Jerry Hoffman? I mean, yes, methodologic issues always occur, but we should, we should not totally discount it based on methodologic issues. Do you think, Rick? No, uh, you know, I thought that we didn't want to waste any time on, this, on that study because it would seem that the conclusions were obvious. Yeah. You have one suit you're more likely to have another suit. And, but some, that offended some people, and they really kind of said, not so fast here. First of all, and you know who was kind of, uh, our friend Steve Stack, who's the uh, emergency physician who is now the president of AMA, I have the highest regard from this fellow. He is. He's a good guy. He is extraordinary physician. He's an extraordinary representative of emergency medicine, and he's an extraordinary representative of physicians across the country. In any case, he said, this is a quote, once again, a study of medical liability claims has based unreliable conclusions on information obtained from inherently flawed national practitioner data bank information. Uh, uh, hold on, because David uh, stuttered from Stanford, who, who, whose article appeared in the New England Journal, um, uh, what, last month, says that this methodology was strong and he stands by his conclusion. 
what was his conclusion? That a physician who has one paid claim against them was more likely to have a subsequent paid claim against them. It didn't say that those were bad doctors or they did anything wrong. But, you know, there are people who haven't done something wrong who do have to pay money, Rick. And I think that's all he's stating is that if you paid money once, you may have to pay money again. And I, and I, think, I think people have challenged a lot of this stuff and we need to talk about it. There are some neat findings in the paper other than the conclusion. Uh, and we should go over a few of those. Why don't you go down some of them, Rick? Physicians with the most paid claims were internists. Uh, that, uh, that was at 15%. Family physicians at 11 And emergency physicians were at 5%. Yeah, but we should hold on. They're the most paid claims, but it's not the most money. You're right. F- uh, family physicians... They see the bulk of patients. Internists see the bulk of patients. So the number of cases may be higher, but the amount per case is not near as high as certain other uh, This fields. is a look at data from 2005 through uh, 2014. Ten, and one of the years. things that was kind of remarkable is only 3% of the lawsuits were paid through trial verdicts. Only 3%. Yeah, that's... I, I'm sure that doesn't include, or it certainly isn't the story in emergency medicine. I think it's much more like 10 or 15%. But for everybody who brings a suit to any doctor in the country, 3%, that's a relatively small amount. The uh, mean payout, and this is from the National Practitioner Data Bank, the mean payout was 371000 bucks. The median payout was about $200,000. Right. So that means there's some big verdicts in there that uh, push that number in the other direction. They looked at, uh, um, there's about 915,000 actively practicing physicians in the U.S. Only 6% had a paid claim and 1% had at least two. Yep. Yep. And, and I, I, so I, I think that all of this stuff, uh, what does it say, a total of four, uh, 4% of physicians had at least three paid claims and ac- accounted for 12% of all claims. So those who had multiple claims seem to have more money involved in, in the condition. Let's look at the, uh, the gist of the one claim doctor. A physicians with one paid claim 16% had at least two. Now, that's over a 10-year period. Your career is probably a 30-year career. And at so least. this yeah. is the information that suggests if you've had one, you're more likely to have two. And then the fact is that is just a fact. That doesn't mean that you, you don't look seriously at hiring physicians who have had a claim. You know, there's all kinds of reasons why you may have had a claim. Some of them are good reasons. Some of them are bad reasons. But the fact is that as ER directors, we're kind of obligated to kind of sift through that stuff and try to ascertain whether where there's smoke, there's fire, or whether you were just in the wrong place at the wrong time. Rick, that's absolutely true. We have one of the letters in the mailbag that says, you know, there's a conspiracy against young doctors who have had more than two claims. I think in our field, in our business, when someone applies for work, the smartest thing for the the director to do 
is to get a copy of those claims, the evaluation from the law from the insurance company, and see if there's any merit to it. I mean, believe me, you and I have both hired people who've had a claim against them in their careers, but I've never hired one where I didn't look at the case and see what the hell went on. I mean, each one of us over the years, even if they're dropped, may have a claim. Now, there are two views of that. I once had a guy come into me and say, well, I've been named eight times, but I've never lost. My review of that was, you lost eight times. You just don't know how much money you lost each time because somebody has to pay those legal bills. So, and, and if you got eight visits, there's eight, eight suits, there's probably something wrong. But the other side of that is absolutely true. I've seen people come in and say, look, I was involved in these two cases, one of them when I was a resident. And as I look at those cases, um, you know what could have happened to any of us. And I just think we need to be open about that. Yeah, you know, we all agree that some areas are more litigious than others, and you have to take that into consideration. There is also all kinds of other factors. So we're not saying, and I, and I, so I'm not so sure why everybody's jumping up and down about this study. It's intuitively correct, and of course, of course, if you were an emergency medical abstract subscriber, you would have been familiar <laughs> with the uh, a paper that was published. In JAMA, November 9th, 1994, 1994, that this was not involving the emergency, uh, the uh, data bank. I don't even know if the data bank existed in 1994. But in any yeah. case, this paper is entitled The Relationship Between Physicians' Malpractice Claim History and Later Claims. Does the Past Predict the Future? And uh, this is a study from the Urban Institute in Washington, D.C., and I'm not, and we're going to put the abstract right into the into the notes. But I can tell you unequivocally, it shows that if you're involved in one suit, you're involved more. You're more likely to be involved in subsequent suits, and two is more likely to be involved in more than two. You know, it, it's, exactly. it's very straightforward. Well, the the only time this is a problem because. Looking at data in the aggregate is not looking at the individual physician who's applying for work in your department. When I was just in Hawaii last week teaching the course, one of the, one of the physicians who works on Oahu came up and said, you know, now in Hawaii, if you've had one loss where you've paid out money, in a lot of centers, they don't look at you seriously I said, why is that? They said, because there are so many people who want to work in Hawaii, they can use any screen they want to. And that's just a screen that they're using. I said, is it really that bad? And they said, they have all the doctors they need in Hawaii. They said this movement of 50-ish year old doctors to warm climates, people getting licenses and willing to work, it is... Uh, it is just a simple screen that their insurance companies love. Well, you know, we do have this uh, letter that you did make reference to where there is substantial frustration because of what is perceived to be blackballing of physicians who may have had very legitimate defenses against the claims that were that were ultimately paid on their behalf. And I think that 
I think the long and short of it is is that it's the director's responsibility to dig down here because there's going to be some terrific doctors who over a career are going to have a couple of claims, uh, not claims, but payouts. And well, there's we we're seeing a lot of things right now that have to do with advanced practice clinicians. We see claims where the doctor's name is there and they never saw the case. And it was perfectly legitimate that they didn't see the case because it didn't meet the criteria to involve the, uh, the physician. You know, how, how are we going to look at those cases? I think, the, I think that each physician has to be looked at individually and you have to decide, uh, you know, you're going to make higher decisions. That's not a good way to make the decision. Yeah, actually, let's look at this case where a collaborating practice agreement between a nurse practitioner and her physician supervisor became the issue in terms of does the physician have a a duty to the patient? Yeah, and, let's, um, let's lay some groundwork here, Rick. This is the state of Indiana, not a a glory state, not one that has too many doctors, that sort of thing a state where the nurse practitioner had a completely separate practice and this physician had signed on in the collaborative practice agreement that he would review something like one in 20 charts to see how the nurse practitioner was doing. Now, how that actually impacts the quality of a care of a single individual, I have no idea. But go ahead, Rick. Tell us about the lawsuit. Well, in any case, the nurse practitioner who did have, you know, some states you have to have a collaborative agreement. Other states you don't. In this state, you had a physician had to be reviewing the nurse practitioner's charts, even though the right. nurse practitioner had what appeared to be an independent practice. In any case, the rule was that this doctor was going to review 5% of the NP charts every week. And... The NP saw a patient, and the long and short of it is that the patient died. Uh, and so the family said, went after the physician. And the issue here at court was not whether, whether the physician was to, to blame for the patient's death or anything, but whether, in fact, the physician had a duty to the patient, had a duty to the patient. And <laughs> they basically went, and even to, and the, the trial court upheld that the physician did, did have a duty this went to the appeals court. The appeals court upheld it as well. There have been some prior cases where they established criteria uh, to help ascertain whether this is the case or not. They specifically talk about Webb versus Jar Jarvis factors. I looked them up. I put them in the notes. I don't think we need to go through them. But the bottom line is, is that this lawsuit is still going on regarding culpability but there is no doubt that this doctor uh, basically is viewed as having a duty to this patient and is involved in this lawsuit. By the way, oh, it, should and, be, it should be pointed out, Rick, that during the process of this doctor being deposed, he admitted he wasn't looking at 5% of this person's uh, charts, maybe 1% if that. The point I would make to our listeners is if you're going to be in some sort of collaborative practice arrangement, does your insurance, Yeah, I mean, have, have you signed off on that? What does your insurance carrier think about this? 
Because if this can be a form of malpractice, most malpractice we deal with very simply involves a physician taking care of a pay, giving medical care. This isn't about the medical care. This is about the supervision, not the medical care. And so I hope that your carrier views this as covered under under the in insurance uh, policy that you purchased. I, if you were wise, I would give that theoretical question to my carrier and get a letter in advance that you attach to your policy that says, yes, my collaborative practice in, uh, agreement covers nurse practitioners and PAs who are by themselves. Yeah, you know, I think this is applicable clearly to emergency departments because emergency departments hire nurse practitioners who have the ability to see patients independently depending on the state in which you're practicing and who can write prescriptions and do the whole kit and caboodle and the doctor doesn't see them. However, don't don't think that you are <laughs> excused if, th if something goes wrong because they you this case clearly shows they can come after you. Um, the other thing is, in this collaborative agreement, you did point out that the doctor was not particularly uh, assiduous with regard to the review of records. And as a matter of fact, in my notes, the supervising physician admitted never reviewing the NP's charts <laughs> right. on a weekly basis. On a weekly basis. Now, he, he had seen details. a few charts, well, you but know, it was actually, not on a weekly basis. Uh, if you talk about reviewing 5% of charts, that I, I kind of figured out that if you, uh, NP was doing like 30 patients a, sh a shift and saw 150 patients a week, and you had to review 5% uh, of them, you'd be, you'd be looking at a, uh, a fairly decent number of charts on a regular basis. And, I, and then, then, the, then the thing is, what criteria are you using to review them in terms of, is it just, well, I think this is okay? Probably. But in any case, there's a citation for this. The, the, the point I think you and I want to make, Greg, is supervision is so, so, so important, particularly when you have a legal mandate that says you have a collaborative agreement. Yeah, and, and you're taking money for it. The point is this isn't being done out of the goodness of your heart. There's a fiduciary relationship between the person providing the service, the nurse practitioner, and the physician. So if they're going to get something from you, you better be able to show that you earned your money. But my other point about making sure that your carrier allows this type of collaborative practice, do this in advance. Don't let this catch up with you in the end. Do you want to do a, a, a little blurb from our most litigious state favorite? <laughs> Which is this one, Rick? This is New York. In the Davis versus Southern mm -hmm. Nassau Community Hospital. Yes. Oh, God. The Court of Appeals held that a hospital has a duty to warn when medications could impair their, their ability to drive and that this duty extends to third parties. Now, we may have covered this before. I'm not sure we have. We did. We've, we, we've covered it in the past, and that's the division between duty to known third party. There are people who we know may be at risk, i.e., if you have gonorrhea, your wife is at risk, your sexual partners are at risk, 
if if you have uh, certain other medical conditions, you can put known people at risk that we can warn. But the rest of the world is the predicted but not individually known individual. So if we fill you full of booze and pills and that sort of thing and stick you in a car, we don't know the name of the person you're going to hit. But what we know is the chances you're going to hurt somebody, the unknown but predicted third party. And that's what this case is about. And what they said was, if you take, if you're in the ED and you treat somebody with uh, IV analgesics and you discharge them 90 minutes later, there is a chance, you know, you better, they better be able to do backflips off the balance beam and land, you know, square well, you footed. Know, that may be, but the, but there are some nuances here in this. And obviously this ruling does not apply to the rest of the United States, but, but it can be extrapolated in other court actions, however, Rick, and people will bring that in, in whatever state you're in. I'll, I'll tell you right now, I had a cataract removed a couple of weeks ago and they wanted to see the person with me who was going to be driving my, me home after the medication. Well, that's, that, that's one of the interesting points about this ruling. Yes. The person got IV analgesics, 90 minute hold, went out, drove a, a car that struck another, and the injured driver in the car sued the hospital, sued the right. hospital. The third party, right. The, the uh, court held that administrating medicines without warning, here you go, without warning, warning. The of the disorienting effect of the drug created a peril affecting every motorist in the patient's vicinity. So, but does, it, does that mean that the court mandated that you – don't let them go or, or that you have some kind of clinical assessment of them before they're allowed to go? The answer is no. The court held that the only duty it was imposing on the hospital was a duty to ensure that the patient was properly warned of the effects of the medication administered. And, you know, I think that that is kind of an important thing because you, you could have you know, there are circumstances where people get sedation for a colonoscopy kind of thing. They get some, the next thing you know, after it, they're wide awake and and they're more than capable of driving, but they say, oh, no, you can't. The, this paper says the obligation is to warn. That's it. The no, obligation I th- is not to stop. No, but I, it, you would think that the obligation of the hospital would be to they recover these patients. They assess these patients. Somebody's got to write down somewhere, awake, alert, talking, understanding, uh, capable of, of driving sort of thing. They got to have some, something like that somewhere, Rick. I, if, if I was running the insurance company of a hospital, I would mandate that, that they have to have some proof that this patient is ready to, you know, you've got to remember when you give somebody a, a car, you've given them a 3,000 pound torpedo, which they can put in any direction they want. I and agree I, with you fully. Yeah. I agree with you. That's not what this ruling mandated, but I agree with you from a malpractice point of view. I, I certainly uh, agree with you 102%. Hey, listen, you got any cases for us this month? Oh, I got all kinds of cases. Rick, this is America. 
The courts are still running. We're still doing well. We got, we got cases. I got a bunch of these that I think are very interesting that, that we need to think about. Case number one, this has to do with some of our favorite drugs, at least if you, when it says favorite drug, it's what people ask for by name. Oxycontin, oxycodone, uh, overdoses, that sort of thing. This is a Kansas case. And Kansas is a conservative state. It's not one that's hard on physicians in general. But this had to do with a woman who was seen um, at a hospital. Now, she was correctly handled from the emergency department into the hospital where she underwent ankle surgery for a very severe injury. Following her surgery, she was discharged home on Oxycontin and Oxycodone. Uh, both. Uh, why if that's the case, I have no idea. This was the day after surgery. The woman had made calls to uh, the defending to the defendant uh, physician complaining of severe pain. Now, Rick, if you're a day away from surgery and you've got severe pain, what should the physician have said? Uh, you got to expect those things. Yeah, uh, they, gr right. Gr exactly. Grin and bear it. Just come back in. I mean, how hard can this be? Just have have one of us take a look at it. Well, the the defendant, the doctor's nurse, doubled both meds, and so now she's sitting at home taking double the dose of oxycontin and oxycodone, and the decedent uh, was not asked. We have no proof that she was asked to come back in or have anybody bring her back in for review. The woman died as a result of a drug overdose. Um, and now, you know, you're talking about a 34-year-old productive employed person. How much worse can this story get? And uh, even, you know, Kansas, which is usually pretty friendly to doctors, thought this ought to be 1.48 million to the family. Actually, and that's, I don't think that that's uh, particularly very much. Uh, one point uh, some million dollars. I don't think so either for a woman with children who was employed, who was not asked to come back in and who's a, a functionary of the doctor doubled the medication over the phone. Now the doctor's uh, story is what? They never told me that Mrs. So-and-so called in. So what he had to do was dump on his, his nurse over this death. Well, you know, if we were to try to extrapolate to emergency department behavior, I think nurses have become more <laughs> and more and more risk averse to giving out any advice over the phone to the point where it's kind of a little ridiculous to tell you the truth. But I don't obviously envision any ER nurse telling a patient to double up on their uh, pain meds. I mean, that would be just an egregious mistake. We have had those cases in the past, Rick, but I, I will agree with you that in the last 10 years, I have not seen any of those cases. Let's give you another case just to kind of keep things going here. A 32-year-old woman, I mean, we're not talking about people who are about to die here, 32-year-old woman, uh, was complaining of abdominal cramps and pain, went to the emergency department. Well, she was pregnant, 
and the ultrasound revealed a live interuterine pregnancy and something on the ovary. Now, you can argue about the numbers here, but at least one in every 30,000, if not one in every 50,000 pregnancies, has both a live pregnancy and an ectopic. It is not uncommon. The ER doc calls down the OB resident who called the uh, defendant doctor who ordered methotrexate be given. Now, what's... I can't imagine that this OB resident ran this by the emergency doc who signed this chart. But what they then did was they gave methotrexate, which of course caused the sloughing of the, what is probably the ectopic, but they also lost the interuterine pregnancy. Now, the emergency physician is in kind of a tough position here. Because he called down the resident and OB. The OB resident spoke to their chief. Their chief, whether he misunderstood it, nobody knows, gave the order for the methotrexate. And now the emergency doc who, you know, had initially seen this patient, that sort of thing, he's charged like uh, he abandoned his patient to a child, a resident, was not aware what went on. I, and, you know, this is a $1.5 million loss in Chicago. I think this sends us a message that if a resident is doing something down there, you're the attending on the site at that moment in time. If you don't agree with what's being done, talk to the other attending, do whatever you can. But you know what? You don't totally turn over the care of a patient to a resident and expect never to have any more liability here. The emergency doc had liability in this case, Rick. Isn't a resident a doctor in training? In training. That's the term. So they're not necessarily the expert by any stretch of the imagination. In many, many cases, the emergency physician will know much more than the Resident, even though the resident is in a specialty like uh, OBGYN or even neurosurgery. And so the more fundamental issue here is not letting other doctors do bad things to patients. And obviously that stretches to doctors who are, uh, who are becoming senile, doctors who are under the influence of alcohol, doctors, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, that you are the ER doctor, you are in charge of that emergency department, and you need to step up to the plate. And, that, and oftentimes it's a little difficult to do because these guys may be you know, very influential members of the medical staff and you're only you know, the ER doctor, but when push comes to shove, you'll be expected to have gone, taken the higher route here and done the right thing. Yep. Here's a, here's a, a sad case, and I, I present this case only because we always think this is happening at Pavungnatuck General. This case happens at one of the great institutions of the United States, CHOP, Children's Hospital of Philadelphia. And... In this, an 11-month-old was brought to the emergency department to CHOP with, you know, runny nose, fever, chills, all the usual stuff. At that time, the child was considered to have a respiratory virus. They kept in the department, looked good, went home. The infant returned to the emergency department on the 22nd. This is the 21st of the month. 
returned on the 22nd the next day. They think, ah, well, he's not doing real well, but he'll be okay. And on the 23rd, he comes back in comatose. Now, the child did not die, but it's just about as bad. This is a, a seven-year-old now when the trial took place who had a hearing loss, central language disorders, developmental disabilities because he had meningitis. Now, there is a, there is a conflict of fact in the trial. The people at CHOP said, well, he looked about the same. Parents said, we brought him back because he looked bad. This child was ill. And, when, and this was a fight between experts in pediatric emergency medicine, that sort of thing. Bottom line is this was a $10.1 million decision against CHOP. And if you asked me, if I was in the Philadelphia area and my grandchild needed to be seen, I'd take him to CHOP. It's a... Uh, it's a world-renowned institution. So these sorts of charting problems and fighting between experts can happen to anyone. And um, uh, just understand, it's, it's just not Joe Blow in the, in the country community hospital gets sued. This can happen anywhere. Well, I guess there are some nuances in this case that we don't know. We don't. Um, like, was it bacterial meningitis? Because... You know, this is so rare now that um, it, I guess maybe because it's rare, it, it is something that we could miss. Was it a fully immunized child? Was it was was that an issue in this case? Yeah, I don't have that information. Yeah, right. right. I I think that the uh, it, it's hard to take home the uh, the message here. Except uh, don't screw up. Um, yeah, it, and you have to remember. It's ugly. Yeah, you have to remember who who was seeing the kid in the in the ER are they not seen by residents are they seen by fa by faculty who knows these there there are a lot of things here that make this a, a, a difficult case well uh, believe me the res the residents were involved and the attendings were involved and the attendings had at least signed the record as if they had seen the case now, whether that's true or not, we'll never know. Mm -hmm. But, uh, you know, if you sign a, a, a slip that says we're going to bill in your name like you gave the service, as far as the court's concerned, you gave the service. Here's another one. Here's somebody who came in, 43-year-old man with a history of obstructive sleep apnea. He, that was on the chart. No question about it. He also came in with some chest pain. So as part of his chest pain workup, he did get some, some narcotics. Well, there was a change of shift, and he got some more narcotics. And as the physician turns this over to the next physician, it just so happens they called down a hospitalist from upstairs to look at him for admission to the chest pain center. Hospitalist comes down makes a comment on the chart, patients somewhat over-medicated at this moment in time. A nurse made the comment, one nurse made the comment that uh, he was falling asleep, thought that he had a lot of medicine on board. Another nurse who came on took the order for the next dose of pain medicine. They went back in the room 30 minutes later, and he's blue and he's dead. 
So at least the hospitalist didn't have to take care of him upstairs. But uh, we have two notes on the chart. And it's noted that one of the nurses made a comment of over-medication, but never followed it up with having informed a doctor, the hospitalist, anyone else involved. So she covered, quote-unquote, her butt by writing down patient over-medicated. Yet another nurse who hadn't checked that chart, she hadn't told anybody, went ahead and gave another dose of uh, morphine to this patient. Now, if there was ever a bigger gift to the plaintiff's bar than this, I mean, if they asked me as conservative as I am, if they said, Greg, you think it's a good idea when there are two people who've said this isn't right, that you don't come back in and re-examine the patient? Now, we just got to eat this one. This is terrible, Rick. This is not good care. Uh, is there a dollar sign there? <laughs> yeah, there is a dollar uh, signed here. And actually, for a 43-year-old working male, $2.25 million in Massachusetts, they probably got out of this one as good as they could get out of it. I, I can't believe that, that, uh, that anybody would think this is good care. What's amazing to me is the nurse who had a finding which she took the time to write down See, if you think it's wrong and you wrote it down, why wouldn't you grab another doctor and pull him in the room? I don't understand it. See, I think a negative nursing note not acted upon, that's a fireable offense in my opinion. I don't know what they're supposed, why in the world did we send her into the room to look at the patient if she's not going to do something about a, a positive finding? Well, you know, you had mentioned that there there was a number of pass-ons involved here. <laughs> yes. And uh, at least on the physician side, I think there's more and more movement towards limiting pass-ons. And I've see, uh, heard of doctors having work hours now that pretty much allow them to finish their patients so there virtually are no pass-ons whether, uh, and I don't want to go into the complexity of how those doctors' work schedules are, uh, are, are, are developed, but the bottom line is, is that it results in few pass-ons, which is probably a great idea because we uh, pass-ons are believed to be dangerous. The Joint Commission is really into pass-ons. They want you to have a checklist now of, uh, 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 that needs to be gone through when there is a pass-on because they view it as a potential safety issue. Now, we've done pass-ons for a long, long, long time, but I think that, as I've mentioned in the past, when at our hospital, we moved to having the doctor who's going to be taking care of the patient during a pass-on to have this discussion in front of the patient. The offgoing doctor and the ongoing doctor are discussing it in front of the patient. The nurse probably ought to be there as well so that everybody's on the same team and wavelength who understands. You know, these, these, um, you see the nurses around the nursing station looking, doing their chart reviews uh, in terms of passing on patients uh, at the change of shifts. And it's like, I don't get it. But in any I case, you know, I, for years, I want to see anybody I'm inheriting. I don't want to, somebody to say, well, check on so-and-so, and if he's okay, send him home. I want you to take me in there. Because 
most of the time when you're sitting talking with another doctor looking at the patient, the diagnosis becomes clear, or at least the action you're going to take becomes clear. I'm against the concept of chart pass on without seeing a patient. It's rude to the patients. They don't get to meet their new doctor. And, you know, it's always interesting when you walk in that room and now there's no question about the fact that there's rebound guarding in the, uh, in the abdomen. Uh, you know, you haven't seen him for an hour and now you've got real findings that you can at least talk about. And I think that's useful. Now, I put this case forward, this next case forward, as what the hell were you thinking case of the year so far? I, I, I just love the way the case starts out. This is a failure. Well, we'll present the case, see what you think about this. He's a 46-year-old healthy man. He's a self-employed lumberjack. Now, no self-employed lumberjack bitches about pain unless they're hurt. Uh, they want to get back out and earn money. Well, what he was doing was he was working up in a tree, and he was a sort of a George of the Jungle thing. You know, they had a wire and a rope. He cut this, and so a about a six-inch in diameter top of a tree comes barreling into his back. At, at the between the shoulder blades, it knocks him out of the tree. Now he's crawling his way back to someplace. EMS comes, they pack him up, they bring him in. And here's where the story starts to get really bad. They send him over to x-ray, but he's in such pain. He can't bring himself to lay for plane films of his uh, thoracic spine right over where the, there's a hematoma and all this other kind of stuff. And he's got, so he's kind of squunches him up himself up as a ball. They send the x-rays off, which by the way, were not read for six hours. Emergency doctor looks at him and says, yeah, they're close enough. He does, by the way, have three broken ribs. See, uh, T three, four, and five, and he can't really tell. It's a little cloudy near T4. And then the radiologist sends back a report that says, really unable to tell this or that, but for the first time in radiologic history, this woman did not say on the chart, further studies like a CT required. They didn't say that. What they said was an inadequate film to read. Well, this guy's laying around now in the hospital. They do get him admitted. And now he says, you know, I can't, my legs aren't quite right. You know, I can't pee. So they, you know, get him a Foley and they'll answer. No 46-year-old man suddenly can't pee. There's something wrong with this. And, of course, what he has is a burst T4 fracture, which is now separated and compressed his spinal cord. And, of course, they go back through and they look at notes and what the nurses have been saying. This guy was telling him he was compressing his spinal cord for a day after he came into the emergency department. This is a sad case. This is a, uh, oh, I, I can't believe that, A, number one, we still let radiologists read a film six hours later. Number two, they couldn't read the, firm, the film correctly and this person is now a 
40-some-year-old guy, 46-year-old man, is now paralyzed who could have been saved. This is not a good case, Rick. It's actually surprising in this day and age that uh, anybody would have an X-ray read six hours later from the emergency department. In most hospitals, ER X-rays are viewed as stat (laughs) X-rays and uh, get put on the top of the heap to be to be read, and so it's kind of like there. There, it seems like there's multiple opportunities to point the finger here, and six hours is right at the top of the at the top of the list. The second thing is, you know, the jury is not going to be very sympathetic to well, uh, the uh, X-ray quality was not there. I mean, it's like, well, are there other things that could have been done? Could you have? done a CAT scan of the chest? Would that exactly. have helped? Could it yeah. have been reconstructed so that you could have seen the <clears throat> the essential uh, elements? This sounds like this injury was very localized. It was, you know, so that the area that needed to be investigated was pretty straightforward. So uh, it it is unfortunate. And if this, if you, this man was a member of your family or my family, we would be really pissed off. That this well, happened. <laughs> funny, Rick. The jury agreed with that and uh, awarded a whole lot of money in this case. Uh, the 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 bottom line here is, if you're not happy with the quality of a film or the patient can't be rotated to get a plain X-ray, what the hell's the difference in doing a CT on this guy to get the area you want? And then six hours after the X-ray is taken you get a, a result back which says, eh, this is a, a poor quality film, and you don't do something about it? I mean, I, I don't understand any of this. I mean, this is this is third world medicine at best. Give me another one. You got anything else there? Yeah, I, you know, I got another case, but we... Uh, we must have we must have some more letters, or you want to save those for another uh, no, no, for another we can, issue? We can, let's do those. All right, because I think we got to deal with our our people writing in. Here's here's from a friend, Joseph Liebman, who you and I both know very well. He writes emergency medicine uh, re- review in Israel. Uh, we all get to read that. He's a very funny guy. Actually, he's a Philadelphia guy. You know that, Rick, right? He's expatriate from Philadelphia. Very funny guy. But he, he writes us a, a very serious letter this month saying, I, I know that this is a difficult subject, but I, I, raise some impor- raise, I want to raise some important question that he's seen in his 30 years of emergency medicine practice. And that is if you suspect an impaired physician. And when he uses the term impaired, he doesn't say whether they're psychologically impaired, emotionally impaired, pharmacologically impaired, alcohol impaired. He just says, when you suspect an impaired physician, and he says, I've been involved in the termination of a, of a family practice resident once who showed up intoxicated. And I once passed on information about this, and they, were, they just sort of folded their hands and said, um, administration will take care of this. You're done with the project. But he continued to work on. He's raising the important issue that particularly if you're a contracted physician, what kind of powers do you have to do to you have 
to deal with a physician where you're concerned about their performance and it doesn't matter what the impairment is, what are we going to do about it? Because I'm going to let you comment, Rick, because I got several of these cases I've been involved in. They're not all happy endings. Noah, actually, we mentioned earlier in the recording how challenging it can be to deal with an impaired physician. And I think there's a gamut. Um, Some of these uh, folks are, it's very, very, very subtle. It's the physician who is uh, having some cognitive challenges as they get older, that uh, they're not on their toes as much as they were. They're, they're starting to miss things. Their, their, uh, their cogitative processes are slowing down. The nurses are commenting to you about the performance of one of your colleagues. And yet, you know that if you start initiating any kind of action, it may be the end of their career. So there's this issue of, and so that is a subtle one. And, you know, that's going to have to be approached. And then there's the more immediate ones like, Dr. So-and-so is intoxicated. He's come in to admit his patient. He came in from a cocktail party. Is clearly, in your view, manifesting signs of uh, organic brain syndrome as a result of alcohol intoxication. And that has to be dealt with immediately kind of thing. So the one, the cognitive issue, you have, you have a little time to work on that one. The, uh, the physician who's intoxicated, that needs to be dealt with right then and there. Yeah, yeah. I, I let me just give you four or five things. Having had to deal with this on doctors both in my department and out of my department who had done things in the department, I'm going to pass on some things I think are absolutely essential. Number one, whoever you're reporting to person in administration, you get a hold of them you and somehow you document you've met with them about taking action everyone complains about delay 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 well you knew doctor you did this you didn't do that so i would get the other people involved because you're not a, a lone wolf here uh you're putting two other groups three other groups at risk what about the patients and here's the the, the standard i use if it was my granddaughter, <laughs> would I be unhappy about this? You know, would I let them work on them? Because if you can't answer that, yes, you can't w- let them work on somebody else's granddaughter. And, and you got to do something about it. The, the second kind of question is, what about the institutional's responsibility? You are, as an emergency physician, the front door to the community. Uh, you're not the back door. You're the front door of the community to that institution. When you go down or emergency doctor go down, the institution goes down as well. And if you don't think they're not upset about it, they have, do- they have donors who give millions of dollars. They've had people who've come to that hospital for years. Small shifts in, in patient movement to the hospital can have huge economic uh, as well as social repercussions. And lastly is you want to get with that physician because maybe it's time you can still salvage their career and and sit down and be honest. The last thing they need is to have you, number one, ignore it, or number two, diminish the seriousness of the problem. You know, I, I my practice at the end of the shift on four, patient, four doctors, I met them. 
and said, you're going to walk with me now down to the laboratory. We're going to get urine and blood. We're going to find out what's going on. I said, if I'm wrong, I'm going to apologize to you, but I'm not wrong, am I? All four of them said, you're not wrong. And I said, you understand, we declare you right now an impaired physician. The hospital has a policy to deal with this, and we can make it so you can come back after therapy and in treatment. Three out of the four, I successfully rehabilitated. The one who left angry had, was then next fired by his next job for the same problem. And uh, he never wrote us for a letter of recommendation. Well, you know, Greg, I think that there's two aspects here that uh, I, I find essential. One of them is whether it's one of your colleagues, one of the emergency physicians in your group. And if you're a contracting group, you have some really, really important obligations to your group and all the other physicians who are earning their livelihood in your group to take actions. And uh, I recently heard a presentation by Kevin Clower, and his recommendation was that physicians who appear to be compromised be immediately removed from their shifts, their, their schedule, and then you have the time to sort out certain issues, but that physician cannot be allowed to continue to practice while there are substantial allegations against them. And yeah. I think that that, you know, not everybody would agree <clears throat> with that. Some would say we, we need to investigate first, but I, I do agree with Kevin's position on that. I think the more difficult cases are when it involves med members of the medical staff. You work for the hospital, but the medical staff basically is the client of the hospital. They bring patients to the hospital. They are the source of income for the hospital. And you and I know that there are, dis there are certain members of the medical staff who are disproportionately influential in terms of driving the view of the medical staff and influencing the medical staff. And I think that those are very challenging uh, kind of cases because this may be an internist, maybe a neurosurgeon, maybe somebody in another department. And um, your obligation, I think, is just as real, but I think it's clearly um, going to take a little bit more courage to uh, suggest that a um, physician is impaired, even if it's a subtle impairment. Well, like we're talking about in terms of decisional and cognitive capacity, how does that get approached? Uh, do you go to the departmental chair? I, I, I think you do. I think you do go to the departmental chair. Some of these cases, as I mentioned, there's some time to work this stuff out and to uh, get an assessment. In other cases, it has to be dealt with immediately. And I think in the cases where it needs to be done with immediately, I think most people will back you up and say, you did, you, you know, you, it turns out that you did the, the best thing for the patient and, um, and we'll stand by you. Yeah, well, you know, we'd all like to think that Wright will win out, but uh, I was for four years the chairman of the Quality Assurance Committee at a hospital. And the reason they made me chairman of that committee was because I didn't admit patients. They thought I would be independent enough. Well, it was the worst thing that some of them could have had happen to them because I actually looked at the care. And I had one guy who was grossly incompetent. Uh, unfortunately, he had two brothers on the medical staff, but you know what? We had to chase this down, and 
it became very difficult for me to stay in that position because we were basically told, you know, you're a contract physician of the hospital. We don't need a guy looking at the care that carefully. So I did my four years and left that committee. And I hope the next person was diligent about this. But I had several of these actions going on. And I can tell you right now, it wasn't pleasant. It was uh, it was uncomfortable, to say the least. But hey, listen, what, what can I say? You, know. you want to wind up with uh, recommendations from the... Uh what is the word? What is the word for a wine lover? The venologists. Yes, you're, are you ready to go to some venology? Yes, the venophiles. Well, it, it all goes back to uh, two weeks ago or a week and a half ago when I'm in Hawaii teaching the course for Rick. There is a very snazzy food and wine store in the mall right next to the uh, Wailea Marriott. So I'm in there, and I'm seeing people haul bottles of wine ahead of me in the line up to the counter, which I, I have no idea why they do this. But you, you realize that Opus One has now become $300 a bottle in Hawaii. Well, there's a guy there who had a, had, had a Venge wine. The winemaker's name is uh, Nels Venge, V-E-N-G-E. And, you know, I'm kind of looking at the bottle in front of me there, and this is their Cabernet Sauvignon DLCV. So I went and checked on this one. It's listed at $475 a bottle in, in Hawaii. It's $575 a bottle. And I looked at the same shelf. They have a wine which is just as good by the same winemaker, Venage, which is great Zinfandel. It's called Scout's Honor Zinfandel. Venge Wine uh, Vineyards. And you can get that for about 34 bucks a bottle. Now, I want to know, because it's from the same vineyards, does the rain fall differently 500 yards away? Does the sun come in differently? You know, when you start getting into the $500 a bottle range, you know, this is for, you know, blessings from the church or something. This is not to drink at dinner. I couldn't believe it. And there are, there are plenty of other examples of that uh, radius, which is a great wine from California. I mean, fantastic. <laughs> They've now, you can get one of their best bottles for 128 bucks. Is it good? Fantastic. But for, but for $34 a bottle, you can get the radius sort of second pressing sort of thing. I can't, I'm not good enough to tell the difference, Rick, you know, and when I'm standing there in Hawaii, seeing guys with $500 a bottle of wine, nah, something's wrong in America. It's just not right. Thanks, Greg. Appreciate uh, the, uh, the fact that you and Jerry Hoffman and Neil Little and, and Kevin were there last week on uh, doing the EMA course. I hope that our listeners plan to go with us this year to one of our remaining courses. Uh, we got a bunch of them left, and um, look forward to seeing you. All Take right, care. see you, see you in New Orleans, and maybe in New York, Rick. Thanks a lot. Bye bye bye.